A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who's been driving along the front lines in Ukraine. We analyse the decision by the UK to supply Ukraine with Storm Shadow cruise missiles, and we discuss the relationship between Russia and Central Asia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday. The 11th of May, one year and 76 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, foreign correspondent James Kilmer, and senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Roland to give us an account of his reporting and his travels across the front lines in Ukraine. I'm in Donbass right now. We've just been over to the kind of broader area of Bakhmut this morning. And that's our latest little trip. We've basically, so since I was speaking to the podcast last, more than a week ago now, we've kind of done the whole length of the line. So we were in Kherson several days ago. We visited another place on on the Dnipro River on that front line. Then we moved over to Zaporizhia Oblast. We've been in in a place called Orikhiv, which is a kind of frontline town on that part of the front. And we arrived in Donbass yesterday. We've just been visiting some Ukrainian units close to the front round here. And could you give us your uh, impressions of the front? I mean, what are the soldiers telling you? What, what are you hearing? So everybody is hunting for the counteroffensive. There's a bunch of journalists in cars driving around Ukraine looking for convoys of weaponry that might tell them something <laughs> and, and and you know a lot of it is chasing ghosts and goose tails i mean we, we heard a we had a tip about a convoy of challenger tanks somewhere so we drove down there and didn't see anything and then um 
I got a tip that there's a town called Bereslav on the river. We did we did a dispatch from there just the other day. It was near Kherson. Something happened. You know, there was an airstrike there, and, and somebody erroneously decided that that's key to the counteroffensive. You know, there's a lot going on there. Drove down there. There's nothing there. I mean, it's just just as you'll see in the dispatch that we wrote. It's one of these towns on the river, and it's quite empty, very badly shelled because the Russians are right on the other side, but very little sign of military activity. Lots of shelling all along the way. So. At the beginning of the week, last week, I'm losing count of the days, you'll remember that horrendous shelling attack in Herson that killed, uh, was it 23 people, I think in the end, right in the centre of the city. We ended up attending the funerals of some of the people killed there. It was a very sad day. Um, really quite moving, you know, kind of horrendous, horrendous stories. But the, the funerals had to be done very, very quickly because they brought in a, the Ukrainians announced a, a kind of a curfew over the entire weekend for Herson. And the official reason was because they wanted to um, to hunt down Russian saboteur groups or something like that. But everybody there was thinking, no, something's up. Um, and when we were there, you could hear heavy shelling, not in the city, but, but down towards the delta, so west of the city, along the river, and also further north. So things were going on there. Same thing in, in Bereslav, a lot of tension, not much going on, but tension, the sense that something's going to happen. On, on the Zaporizhia front, again, you know, we, we got to a town... We were very lucky. There was no shelling that day. But, you know, two days earlier, two of these enormous, these glide bombs, um, you know, big 500 kilogram airdrop bombs had, had come in and, you know, smashed the place up. Um, and that's a place that's also repeatedly shelled. Again, this sense of waiting, not much going on, but waiting, 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 just huge amount of nervousness. Lots of civilians saying things like, think about it every day, the counteroffensive, you know, waiting for it every day because it might push the front back and then we can have a little bit of normal life. And again, a lot of soldiers, the soldiers who will talk about it saying the same thing, like, you know, we're, yeah, everybody's waiting for it. We're waiting, we're waiting. We don't know. People who do know won't tell you. But I must say, listen, I've just come out of, um, I was just up near Chassivyar. There is something very big going on in Bakhmut today. There is a huge amount of ordnance flying around. I mean, one of the heaviest artillery barrages I've ever heard. Quite difficult to tell which side is firing. And I think they both are. But I I have a sense there's something going on in Bakhmut. And, and I was speaking to a Ukrainian journalist who just came out of there this morning, who's there overnight. He says, and again, someone else is reporting, he was there just passing it on, reliable guy. He says the Ukrainians took about several hundred meters last night pushing forward so i think there's something going on out here and maybe maybe we're beginning to see the beginning of the counteroffensive. and uh, roland i think i think i've asked you this every single time we've, we've talked to you when you've been out there but has anything is any has anything been different or surprised you about your trip compared to the last one is there anything you, you found that you didn't expect didn't expect to find what stands out about this this as you said a broad tour of the front to your previous to your previous reporting trips out there well, the, the weather's changed dramatically, obviously. I was last here in February, and there was snow everywhere. It was very cold and everything. And now, you know, it's high spring turning into summer. You know, places where you were that were, were frozen are, are green again. I mean, this is the second time we've been through this. It's the second spring of the war. So, you know, that that in itself is not that surprising. I think there's definitely, a, you know, people are more used to the war. People are tired, but, you know, it's it's, it's kind of more matter of fact, the way people are cracking on with things i have noticed i know we've talked about this actually before and you, you've had people on talking about the language question and so on this is the first time i've really began to feel like people are speaking 
generally speaking, more Ukrainian than Russian, even in places where I'd be quite surprised to hear it. So that's noticeable. And but you know, on the whole, um, you know, it's all kind of depressingly, depressingly familiar that the front's been pretty much where it's been for a very long time, and the the nature of the war, the you know artillery flying back and forth, hasn't really changed that much you know and and airstrikes missile strikes on places like you know inside the country in kiev and, and and other cities shelling along the front line that's all been a fact of life for you know what is it now 14 15 16 months i don't know i'm losing count so that's where yeah that's that that i think is where i would stand i think so yeah i've just got one final question roland actually you mentioned you attended the funerals of the people killed in Hassan. Could you tell us just a little bit about their stories? You, you hinted at it earlier, but it'd be good to hear just a little more detail on that, if that's all right. Yeah, it was So we, we got to Hassan, was it a day, two days after that horrendous attack? And we were lucky. There was no shelling that day, in, well, inside the city, as far as we could tell. So we were able to get in. And the family, a number of the families were kind of queuing up at one of the morgues in the city to collect the bodies and then drive them out to one of the big cemeteries on the edge of town to kind of get them buried that afternoon before the 6 p.m. curfew that was coming in. So it was really, I mean, it was grim. You had three or four families, I think, outside one morgue, and it was done in a queue. It was almost a production line in a a kind of macabre sense. You know, people gathered, collected the bodies, drove them out to the cemetery, and at the cemetery it was everyone got about 45 minutes an hour to do their funeral before the next bus came along along the line i mean the stories were i mean as heart-wrenching as you'd expect we really spoke to two particular families and one's of the this man in his 40s i think who was picking up so he was picking up his wife and his daughter from his daughter had been at work i think and they were driving past this or at this supermarket that was hit so the shells came in and hit the supermarket and he immediately kind of jerked the wheel around stamped on stamped on the accelerator to get out of there um, and his daughter told him you know i was sitting in a bag and i said look why are you going so fast just you know calm it a bit and at that moment the second salvo came in and he was killed instantly but a shrapnel took half his head off actually and his wife had to she described how she had to you know he died she had to grab the wheel the car was still moving and kind of struggle with the dead body of her husband for control of the car so she could stop it and they were taken to hospital and his son you know talks about how he was you know stayed out in the shelling to kind of look after the body of his father until it was taken to the morgue really and 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 it's it's so sudden and it was only two days ago so these are families who really hadn't had time to you know process it or get through it the grief was really really raw the other the other family was the there was a lad in his 30s who was an electrical engineer and him and his three-man team had been out fixing it was a transformer or some power lines or something and his mother said look you know they were using the heavy equipment or they had a generator going or something they didn't hear the shelling start didn't have a chance all three of them were killed and that was you know it was one of those moving things where she was saying, like, I, I wasn't going to do this publicly. You know, I just wanted it. Me, you know, me, his dad, and his sister-in-law, because his older brother disappeared earlier in the war, so they've lost both their sons now. 
And then people start knocking on the door the next day, people she'd never met before, with flowers saying, oh, we're looking for, I think his name is Andre, Andre's mum. It turned out he was very popular at work. He had a lot of friends. <clears throat> so a lot of people showed up to bury him. And that was, the other thing she said that was interesting, that it was an incredibly dangerous job because he had been injured previously while on a job. Back in March, he was wounded and he'd only just got out of hospital and gone back to work three days earlier. While he was in hospital, two other members of his crew um, were killed when their vehicle hit a mine when they were on a job. So, you know, electrical engineers, you know, municipal workers who keep this city going are doing an incredibly, incredibly dangerous job. You know, we don't, you know, often hear about these guys, but, you know. So, yeah, really, really tough stuff. A kind of grim day at the cemetery with the shelling still going on in the background. Drone went over in the direction of the battle while we're there. And that uneasiness, you know, the grave diggers were working really hard because they were filling in. The graves are pre-dug. There's a lot of pre-dug graves in the cemetery. And you can see how quickly it's expanded since the war began. But basically, the, you know, the families were allotted a pre-dug grave, you know, one after the other in this row. And the grave diggers were, you know, really shoveling stuff fast and trying to keep people going. And there was a one particular moment where, you know, there was a, something went bang closer than, you know, closer and louder than we thought. And they kind of, you know, hurried up, got things going, started shoveling twice as quickly. So that was, yeah, that was, that was a very, very grim day. It sounds really tough. Thank you very much, Roland, for joining us. And I hope we can hear from you again before, before you leave. Dom, Nichols, can I come to you next? We've heard from Roland, who's been on the ground near Bakhmut. Um, we've got some updates from you on the situation there as well. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, Roland. And uh, Heathcliff, hi, everybody. So I think what Roland's describing there, what he's hearing and seeing going in and out of, uh, of Bakhmut is this, um, this continued local local either counterattack or local reversal in the southwest of the city so there are reports that russian forces to the southwest of bakhmut retreated up to about two kilometers and this comes from ukraine's ground forces commander general alexander sersky commander in the region he said yesterday so last night after we reported it not not because we reported it but after we'd been after the episode had aired he said, in some areas of the front, the enemy could not resist the onslaught of the Ukrainian defenders and retreated to a distance of up to two kilometres. Not sure about it was the onslaught, but anyway, they, they did seem to go back. He said the Ukrainian military had exhausted the Wagner group, who obviously were you know, front and centre in the in the centre of the city, and uh, had forced them to be replaced in certain directions by less well-prepared units of Russian regular troops who were defeated and left. So we reported on that yesterday. Some details on that. Now, Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of Wagner, he on Telegram, he has confirmed, and I don't think this is sort of Machiavellian, Maskarova, I don't think he's lying, basically. He's confirmed the partial retreat from the from the edge of the city and said Ukrainian units approaching on the flanks. So speaking on Telegram, he, in response to a question, he said that Ukrainian operations were unfortunately partially successful went on to say that um, President Zelensky was being deceptive when he told European broadcasters yesterday that the counteroffensive had not yet begun and that they were waiting for more Western aid. That's the Ukrainians waiting for more Western aid. Prigozhin said 
No ammunition has been given to Wagner despite instructions of the past few days. So you remember he had that hissy fit last week, toys out the pram, made those videos saying give us some ammunition to the MOD, Russian MOD. And then within 24 hours was back on Telegram saying, right, it's all sorted. They're going to give us the stuff. But he's now saying... That, that nothing has been received and that Wagner is being dried out, his expression, dried, dried out, i.e. they're artificially reducing the combat potential because they're just, they're just being starved of ammunition and personnel. And he said that due to this reduction, Wagner has been forced to transfer some of the flanks of Bakhmut to regular Russian military units. So we've got regular Russian stuff in there. We've also got the so-called Donetsk, Luhansk People's militia so less obviously less less well trained and the the point is that they're that they're not talking to each other there's open animosity between them if there's any fault lines between units between formations between different groupings on the on the battlefield you need to put your best people sounds counterintuitive but you need to put your best people in a liaison role to knit those things together because they are fault lines you know you don't know who's covering them and it sounds as if either ukraine has has worked out what those fault lines are and is exploiting them or they've just they're just naturally collapsing so Prigozhin is saying that they are already cracking and falling apart and his forces are at risk of encirclement in the absence he says he goes on in the absence of ammunition the meat grinder will work in the opposite direction the armed forces of Ukraine will destroy PMC Wagner the private military company Wagner now prominent Russian mill blogger one of this this sort of the, the nationalist community, he claimed yesterday that Ukrainian forces tried to adver- advance further in the area of the Luhansk People's Republic, their expression, their fourth motorised rifle brigade zone of responsibility in the Bakhmut area after the attack on well, uh, yesterday from Ukraine. But the formations, and this is their expression, of unspecified Russian paramilitary company prevented a Ukrainian breakthrough. So sounds like there's a bit of a bit of chaos there. But, we, but it does seem as if there's been a reversal to the southwest of the city. I don't think this is this is the the counteroffensive. However, you know, these things sometimes have a momentum of their own, and you, you reinforce success. You, you look to reinforce success in military operations. You don't reinforce failure. So this might this might start something. I, I don't know. But so we will obviously watch that one with with great interest. Just one other thing to say. So. Ben Wallace has just been on his feet in the House of Commons giving a giving a statement as as we've reported for for months as has been expected and we spoke yesterday Britain is going to supply Ukraine with long range precision cruise missiles the Storm Shadow cruise missile about 150 mile range 450 kilogram warhead it's gps guided it's got um, it can fly a nap of the earth it's not it's not you know it can f- control itself it can paint the target so it, it just before it hits the target it, it it bunts up the nose cone pops off and a big big old camera thermal camera infrared camera has a look sees that it's going where it should be going see that if there's anything else and the juicy targets in the way see this is if it's going off target or if there's a risk of collateral damage in which case it can you know, veer off and, and spank in somewhere else. But a very capable missile extends the range of precision, precision, put my teeth in, precision strike for Ukraine. So we're up, Storm Shadow is just short of kind of Atakum's range. So High Mars is, is good. High Mars about 50 miles, 80 Ks-ish. The High Mars launcher can also fire the Atakum's, the Army Tactical Missile System weapon, which is much longer range. And there's been a lot of, speculation as to whether or not they would be sent so 
Storm Shadow is not in that in that range, but 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 up there. And this is able for to provide very deep strike for Ukraine headquarters, logistic nodes, fuel depots, things like that. So Ben Wallace was on his feet. He was saying, just very briefly, he was saying Russia has caused the largest displacement of people since the Second World War. He said he wrote in December to Sergei Shoigu, the Russia's defence minister, saying any attacks on civilian infrastructure would force me to consider sending more capable weapons to Ukraine. He was quoted as saying. He then went on, more medical facilities were targeted in January this year than in the previous six months combined and said that Britain won't stand by while Russia kills civilians. He said the Prime Minister and he had taken the decision to provide longer-range capabilities, confirmed we're donating Storm Shadow to Ukraine, long-range, conventional-only precision strike capability. He said it complements HIMARS and Harpoon and Ukrainian Neptune missiles. He said the donation would give Ukraine the best chance to defeat aggressive Russian continued brutality. And it will, uh, well will allow Ukraine to push back Russian forces based in Ukrainian sovereign territory. Again, that, that point about would it be would it, these weapons be used inside Russia, which is deemed too provocative and escalatory. Take your view on that, but that's the, that's the policy position at the moment. And he went out of his way to say that, that these weapons are not in the same league as the Kinzhal hypersonic missile or the Shahids or some of the other KH-101 and triple five cruise missiles that um, uh, Russia are firing. He said that these are the range of Storm Shadow is is a is a fraction, a seventh of the maximum range that Russia is firing. So he's, you know, he's he's well, he said it's a calibrated and proportionate response to Russia, and he's very great pains there to to, to not overblow this. He then he then um, finished by saying Yevgeny Prigozhin is making himself deeply unpopular, and finished with uh, if I were him, I wouldn't stand near any open windows in the vicinity of Putin. So yeah, forget the last bit. It's a bit of bit of a laugh but yeah storm shadow a capable a capable weapon um because it largely looks after itself it doesn't need a huge integration onto the aircraft so unlikely that it will take very long to get it onto the migs that they've currently got of course ukraine is asking seeking other other aircraft particularly f-16 but regardless it shouldn't take too long and i probably i think they've probably already done it they're already integrated, I would have thought. I doubt they're announcing this now at the start of the whole, right, let's get the get the black nasty tape, fellas, and, and stick it on the aircraft. Why announce it now? I mean, it's, it's as I say, I think these things have been there for a, for a while now. They might be very few in number. And so just the mere mention of it could get Russia thinking, right, we need to start moving our headquarters, moving our logistic nodes, spreading things out. So just the mere mention of it could have a disruptive effect. So this is all part of the shaping operation for the for the counteroffensive. I can't imagine this announcement from Britain would have been done in isolation from Ukraine. I think it's all coordinated. The statement yesterday from President Zelensky I think is all is all part of this. It it ramps up the idea of preparation. It it potentially throws Russia into a little bit of confusion. You've got Zelensky saying, we're not ready yet, we need more time. And then the next day, you've got these mega high-precision weapons. So I think it's all part of the shaping. I think the things have probably been there for a while, are probably already fully integrated onto the Ukrainian MiGs. And I don't think it'll be long before we start seeing things go bang very far behind Russian lines. Thank you very much, Dom. Before we come to Genevieve and James, can I go to Francis next? There have been quite a few important developments in the diplomatic space, Francis. What's taken your eye? Well, thank you, David, and thank you for your reporting, Roland. 
President Zelensky gave an interesting in-depth interview this morning to the BBC and other European television outlets covering quite a diverse range of subjects, most notably, however, the upcoming counteroffensive. The top line being that he said Ukraine needs more time to launch this counteroffensive as the military still needs the Western aid which it's been promised. To quote from him directly, he says, with what we have, we can go forward and be successful, but we'd lose a lot of people. I think that's unacceptable, so we need to wait. We still need a bit more time. He went on, he said that the Ukrainian combat brigades were ready, but the military still needed some things, including armoured vehicles, which were arriving in batches. The president, however, expressed confidence that the Ukrainian military could advance, warning of the risks of a frozen conflict, which he said was what Russia was counting on. And that, of course, alludes to many of the things that we've touched on in the past, and I'll get to that a little bit later. Now, he also gave a robust response to those seeking a pathway to negotiations at this stage. He says everyone will have an idea that they can't pressure Ukraine into surrendering territories. Why should any country of the world give Putin its territory? He also dismissed fears about losing U.S. support if President Joe Biden, who's vowed, of course, to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, is not re-elected in 2024. Ukraine, he said, still enjoyed bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress. Who knows where we'll be when the election happens? I believe we'll win by then. Now, he said that, of course, previously. There are many analysts who think that is very, very unlikely. But nonetheless, it's a consistent line coming out of Ukraine. Now, I'll come in a moment to the remarks of former President Donald Trump yesterday, where he made several notable interventions about the war in Ukraine, which has led to some considerable comment this morning. But first, I just will say, carrying on with this interview, that Zelensky also made some interesting observations regarding the impact of sanctions on Russia. In his view, these sanctions are having an impact on Russia's defence industry, especially on depleted missile stockpiles and shortages of artillery. He said they still have a lot in their warehouses, but we already see they've reduced shelling per day in some areas. However, he said that Moscow have have found ways to bypass some of the measures and has urged countries to target those helping Russia circumvent the bans. Lastly, he responded to speculation that Ukraine was responsible for the drone attacks on the Kremlin last week. He said that he believed that the apparent attack could have been a false flag operation carried out by Russia itself, and the claim was being used as an excuse by Moscow to attack his country. Uh, He said they're constantly looking for something to sound like a justification saying, you do this to us, we do that to you. But it won't work. Even for their domestic public, it didn't work. Even their own propagandists didn't believe that because it looked very, very artificial. And just on this subject, I'm grateful to listeners who've reached out regarding an interview from several days ago on CNN that seems to have slipped under the radar. Uh, It's from Ilya Ponomarev, formerly of the Russian state Duma, now in exile in Ukraine, and he was the only parliamentarian to vote against the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and is an important opposition figure in the country, I think it's fair to say. Now, he was asked about who was responsible for the drone strike and whether it was Russian partisans who were behind it, and he responded as follows. I know it as a fact. I know the people who produce those drones. They were not factory manufactured. We were discussing they had plans to attack Red Square on the 9th, of course the 9th being the parade, but they decided not to 
and rather do a warning to try and get them to cancel the parade. Then he's asked, you talk to them directly, by which the questioner means the partisans? Yes, for sure. It's not Ukrainians. It's out of range. The reason the missile defense systems did not interpret those drones was because those drones were launched right next to Moscow. So the usual caveats apply here. It is in Mr. Ponomarev's interest to spread the idea that Russian partisans are active in the country, both, of course, for damaging the Kremlin's reputation, but also to boost his own profile and this sense that he's a key figure in steering them. But he is a notable individual, somebody whose word can't be dismissed out of hand. And of course, if it is true, it further adds evidence to the idea that the Ukrainian government wasn't responsible for the drone strike. In other news, as I alluded to a moment ago, former President Donald Trump, who is, of course, running again to be president of the United States in 2024, has made some notable remarks when asked about the war in Ukraine for a CNN town hall overnight. In short, he has refused to pick a side, saying that he doesn't, quote, think in terms of winning and losing, close quote, and claimed that he would end the conflict within a single day if he were re-elected. He says, I think in terms of getting it settled, so we stop killing all those people. If I were president, this would never have happened. And then the moderator tries again to get Trump to choose a side, and he responds, I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying. Russians and Ukrainians, I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. You need the power of the presidency to do it. The moderator presses him again. But you won't say you want Ukraine to win. To this, Trump responds that Europe should put up the money. I want Europe to put up more money. They're laughing at us. They think we're a bunch of jerks. We're spending $170 billion for a faraway land, and they're right next to that land, and they're in for $20 billion. I don't think so. Now, Trump has been fairly consistent on this. He was ridiculed at the time for criticising NATO for not spending more on defence, but actually, in many ways, he's been proven quite prescient in, in what he was saying. Uh, in 2018, after a NATO summit, he tweeted several criticisms of NATO countries, particularly Germany, for only paying a fraction of the amount of money that they should have been according to the rules of NATO, or at least the commitments that one signs of joining NATO, the 2%. And so he's been pretty consistent on this. But nevertheless, that was, of course, before the full-scale invasion. And many are criticising the timing of this, given what is now, of course, happening in Europe. The Kremlin will be, frankly, rubbing their hands over this and these kind of remarks. I mean, I would argue that far from cutting short the war, which seems to be what Trump intends, they almost guarantee to make it go on longer. Putin will hear them and will now be able to say to his generals that, you know, if we just ride out the next year, then Trump may be reelected and Ukraine will be forced to capitulate. So it's very, very dangerous in my view what he is saying. Now, he did also go on and talk about how much he still respected Putin and did during his presidency. He said that he made a tremendous mistake. He's a smart guy. I remember I said he was smart. And then he goes on. China's president is smart. He's the ruler of 1.5 billion people. He's a smart guy. How dare he say he's smart? Of course he's smart. They want you to say he's a stupid person. He's not a stupid person. He's very cunning. I mean, it's an interesting way of thinking about Putin and Xi. It sort of seems to be that he conflates Xi's power in some way with his intelligence and the kind of legitimacy to govern. But if the people in those countries had a genuine say in putting them there, 
would they have wanted these these people? It seems to me that he's ignoring the proliferation of state terror. But anyway, I digress. One last thing is that it's put to him if he believes Putin is a war criminal. And Trump dodges the question. He says that using the term is something that should be discussed later. Quote, right now, if you say he's a war criminal, it's going to be a lot tougher to make a deal to get this thing stopped. If he's going to be a war criminal, people are going to grab him and execute him. He's going to fight a lot harder than he's fighting under the other circumstance. That's something to be discussed at a later date. Right now, we want to get that war settled. I'm not talking about the money either. I'm talking about all the lives. The number of people being killed in that war is far greater than you hear. When they blow up the city and the buildings come down, hundreds of people are killed and we have to get that war settled. I mean, the the argument that people will grab and execute Putin if he's a war criminal. I mean, that hasn't happened with the with the ICC, which has already, of course, declared him as such. It does seem rather unlikely, but it does, of course, fundamentally reveal the fact that Trump wants to broker a peace with Putin directly, something ruled out by many Western leaders. So in short, whatever your views on the war and Donald Trump's analysis, this does put him fiercely at odds with most of the free world on the matter of Ukraine. If he were re-elected president, then it would put him at loggerheads with Europe on defence matters and may even see the end of support for Ukraine entirely from America's perspective, despite Zelensky's optimism that I touched on a moment ago. It's a sobering fact that this war may, and I say may, become a predominantly European responsibility in the longer term. And the question is, is Europe prepared for that? Arguably, only Poland and a handful of other countries have recognised the new reality, whereas others seem very hesitant indeed, and their defence spending remains static. And I broadly would put Britain in that category, despite all that they've done for Ukraine early on in the war. Is it right that America is funding this war on Europe's doorstep? That is going to become an increasingly significant question in the months ahead, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, before we come to James Kilner, and thank you so much, James, for being so patient. Genevieve Hall-Allen, you've joined us from the Foreign Desk. You've been running the live blog again today. You've got a couple of things you want to talk to us about. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. Thanks. And yeah, it's been a really busy day on the live blog today, as, as it is most of the time, to be honest. But yeah, the first piece of news which I'd like to speak a little bit about is is from a report by our reporter, Joe Barnes. And it's based on this pretty remarkable footage which you can see in his report on our, on our website and it was released by the 92nd mechanized brigade of the Ukrainian armed forces and it appears to so- show a lone russian sh- soldier kind of begging a ukrainian drone not to bomb him and instead was offered a peace offering and was asked to, to follow the drone and to surrender so this footage was uploaded to the account of a Ukrainian drone commander, Yuri Fedorenko, of, as I said, the Ukrainian 92nd Brigade. So we obviously need to bear that in mind when we do look at this footage. But what we appear to see is instead of an explosive, a soldier, a lone soldier in a trench was dropped a message containing instructions on how to give himself up. This is kind of from some aerial footage that has been shared. And as our Russian artillery fire pounded the area, the fighter was urged to climb out of his trench and onto open terrain to then be escorted by the drone to a Ukrainian position. 
in in one part of the video we see kind of something wrapped in in plastic and, and a message written in Russian on it in, in blue marker pen which says surrender and follow the drone which is then attached to the base of, of this drone and then we also see this aerial footage as I said in which you can see this lone soldier walking th- through a trench and then and then crouching down he then gets up and, and looks upwards before making a, a kind of cross with his arms this note is then dropped and, and picked up by this soldier who appears to signal that he understands the message before making his way out of the trench and continuing to follow behind the drone or, or that at least that's what this this footage is purported to show us so mr fedorenko this this drone commander shared the video onto telegram and said bakhmut a charitable act from the armed forces of ukraine on may the 9th now, obviously, as we know, May the 9th was this Tuesday and was Victory Day in Russia, a major national holiday where Russia celebrated the victory of the Soviet Union over Nazi Germany. So that may be, well, be why or, or related to this this act. Mr. Fedorenko went on to say, the unmanned combat aerial vehicle squad detected a Russian soldier who asked not to bomb him. Our team dropped him a note with a request to surrender and follow a drone. He agreed, although his fellows were firing at his back. Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister Mikhailo Fedorov then confirmed that the Russian soldier had been taken into custody. He said the enemy noticed the drone and began to make gestures to show a desire to surrender. Infantrymen and scouts accompanied him all the way to Ukrainian positions. So Kiev has promised disillusioned conscript safety in exchange for kind of laying down their weapons on on several occasions. I mean, last year, the Ukrainian government launched a I Want to Live hotline, um, which was run by Ukraine's coordination headquarters for the treatment of prisoners of war. And they said that in November, towards the end of last November, they said that up to 100 people per day were using it. So this kind of show of of being of, of mercy towards Russian Russian conscripts who surrender is something we've seen before. But I would say really take a look at this footage because it is pretty, pretty remarkable. Thank you very much, Genevieve. I think I believe there's one more story from you before we go to James. Yes, so this is this is coming from from inside Russia now. A Moscow court has fined Google three million rubles, which is roughly equates to thirty one thousand six hundred and eighty pounds, for failing to delete content about Russia's military campaign in Ukraine, and then also what it described as in quotes LGBT propaganda. So this was from Interfax news agency today, and um, this is the latest court case against a kind of Western tech giant in the crackdown on media following the outbreak of war in Ukraine last year. Interfax reported that according to court materials, the case partly concerned several YouTube videos containing, obviously they say, false information about the course of the special military operation in Ukraine. As well as passing strict censorship laws shortly after troops were dispatched to Ukraine in February 2022, Russia also last year strengthened its laws against what it calls, in quotes, the promotion of LGBT propaganda, which was heavily criticised by independent human rights groups at the time. State news agency TASS reported that Russian prosecutors said that Google had refused to remove several videos, including one, they say, by a blogger who was considered a foreign agent by Moscow about how same-sex couples raise children and about the LGBT community in St. Petersburg. So there's kind of two sides 
to this fine from from Google, this fine for Google. Sorry, today, um, Moscow has issued dozens of fines against Western tech companies under these laws, and actually, Google has been fined twice since the end of 2021, according to Interfax. So this is before the war. And um, in, in December 2021, the subsidiary, Russian subsidiary of Alphabet's Google had filed for bankruptcy following a fine of 7.2 billion rubles. So the latest update in financial woes for Google in Russia. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Genevieve. It's always good to hear you. And, and just to repeat, of course, that, 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 that video, you know, the caveats do apply. It has been released by the Ukrainian side. So we do have to bear that in mind when thinking about it. But thank you for taking us through what was, if, if, if true, an extraordinary piece of footage. James Kilner, thank you so much for bearing with us. Can I come to you? We were chatting earlier this week after looking at the uh, Victory Day parade in Moscow, and you made several interesting points from the Central Asian perspective. Could you take us through them? Thanks for having me back on. Yes, Tuesday, obviously, the May 9th Victory Parade in Moscow was uh, headlining around the world. And obviously, there were several critical points, the single trundling uh, World War II tank, etc. A lack of any real soldiers, mainly cadets, all those were the headline stories in the West. But there was this hugely important side story which was going on as well in, in playing out in Red Square in Moscow. And that was the appearance of all five Central Asian leaders former Soviet, parts of the former Soviet Union, and also the uh, Prime Minister uh, of Armenia. We'd been expecting the Tajik and the Kyrgyz presidents to turn up, but I had not been expecting all five uh, Central Asian leaders and uh, Pachini and the uh, Armenian Prime Prime Minister to turn up. And it really took me by surprise. And I think it's really noticeable, uh, important for our our readers and our listeners to 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 analyse. It added, and it's really important for three or four reasons, it, it added a degree of international credibility for Putin. Last year, if we remember, he, he didn't have any international leaders with him. And in 2021, mainly because of the COVID pandemic, he just had the Tajik um, leader. But here, here was a full, full, full show of, of, of support, really from his former vassal states in Central Asia. The first time they'd all been together in Red Square, I think for around about a decade. It's difficult to be that precise, but something like that. So we had that going on. We, we had a lot of different body language to analyse as well. Central Asia has become a really important geopolitical part of this, of, of this war because, A, it sits in the middle of Asia, along the main trade routes between China and uh, the West. Secondly, it has become a very important backdoor for the Kremlin to import products which are banned by the US, etc. Sort of something called parallel imports. Um, Many of these countries are part of of a greater economic union with Russia. And, and it's very easy for them to, to, to imp- increase the number of imports and then send, send these products which are banned under Western sanctions to Russia. Um, and we've seen huge increase in imports into places like Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Ten times the number of washing machines, for example, have, have been ordered. We know that these are then stripped for their... Um, for, for their micro trips and, 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 and used possibly in, in Russian weapons, etc. So there's that. And in, in fact, only today there was a report saying $1 billion worth of products which were supposed to be sent to Central Asia via Russia have disappeared. 
in, in Russia. So we, so we know that they're being used as a sort of backdoor for, for the Kremlin. And the West, Britain, America, et cetera, have been, have been putting a huge amount of pressure on Central Asia to, to try and stop them doing this. Clearly, on Tuesday, we saw that even though the Central Asian countries have tried to distance themselves from the Kremlin's war in uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, they they have they find it incredibly difficult to to disentangle their economies and their politics and their security systems so so totally. And clearly, the Kremlin had a whip round, three line whip was called, and said, "Right, all you guys have got to turn up to to, to Moscow and sit with Putin and watch the parade." Of course, they're all former Soviet states, and all their all you know they they contributed soldiers to the Soviet Union's World War II effort as well. But um, the context of them going to Moscow at a time like this is, is, is incredible. Kazakhstan, for example, has been one of the most outspoken about uh, sort of resistance to, to, to supporting the Kremlin, Kremlin's invasion of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Last year, the president, Kasim Tokayev, shared a stage with Putin in St. Petersburg and said live on TV he didn't agree with the, with the invasion. And when I was in Kazakhstan last summer, there was huge anxiety and worry from Kazakhs that they were going to be invaded ne- next. And plenty of pundits on, on Russian TV were threatening this as well. Kazakhstan shares the longest continuous land border in the world with Russia. There's a large ethnic Russian population in North Kazakhstan. So they were really worried. It hasn't happened. Those fears have abated as the Potemkin state of, of Russia's army has been exposed, etc. But there was real worry. And my my friends and sources in, in Almaty, the financial centre of Kazakhstan and Astana, the capital, have told me that they're really angry and really ashamed that Tokayev ended up sharing a platform with Putin watching this, this Red Square military parade, etc. And they're frustrated that they can't disentangle more from, from, from the Kremlin, etc. And all this is a little bit, one, one more bit of context we need to put, put, in, put into this story, David. At the end of April, at a meeting of defence minister of the Shanghai Corporation Organisation, uh, which is the Russia-China-led grouping, which is focused on Central Asia. Some, some, some pundits in the West have called it the NATO of, of the East. That's not correct. It, it's, it spans, there's a military component, but it's also mm-hmm. economic, social Etc. Uh, Etc. Et but there was this defence meeting in India, which has now joined the group. And at that meeting, the Russian defence minister Sergei Shoigu accused the US of trying to increase its uh, military influence over Central Asia, and tried to cajole the SCO into forming a stronger military grouping or, or component against NATO. He's an awful long way off, but. The fact that they're even starting to talk about it is really important to monitor. And on Monday, when the Kyrgyz president was in, he, he came to Moscow a day early to have meetings with, with Putin. That's uh, Kyrgyz president, uh, Sadir Japarov. The Kremlin announced a deal to boost its military bases in Kyrgyzstan. It, it currently has a reasonably sized air base near the capital Bishkek, as well as sort of submarine and torpedo testing centre around Lake Issaquah, which is a huge alpine-style lake in in, in eastern Kyrgyzstan. 
So I think we're going to see more of a militarization around Central Asia. And this all this is all linked to the war in Ukraine and Tuesday's showcase of, of support, I guess you is a way of putting it, from Central Asian leaders in the Kremlin, in Red Square, is a really important sideshow of this whole drama. Thanks, James. Just one question from me before we go to our final thoughts. Um, one of the last times you've joined us to talk about Central Asia, you spoke about how it was sort of the geopolitical weight of China being Russia-leaning that would influence the positioning and future direction of lots of the Central Asian states. In what you saw on Tuesday, do you detect China's influence there at all? Or is this more clever, more robust Russian diplomacy? Where do you think the power is coming from here? So, no, this is a this is a Kremlin project, in short. China has huge influence over Central Asia, and it's more of an economic, uh, business-led manner. The security and the military influence in Central Asia is far more Moscow into the region. That's where the security, security services of each country are very closely aligned to Moscow. They all speak Russian, etc., etc. So there's... The, the Kremlin influence is, 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 is very huge politically. When there was a coup in Kyrgyzstan in 2020, it was the Kremlin that got involved trying to sort out. The Chinese took a step back. Um, so these big, and when there was a near revolution in Kazakhstan uh, in January last year, again, it was the Kremlin who stepped in and, and the Chinese stepped back. The Chinese influence is huge from an economic point of view and a debt point of view. There's a, there's a very big and very important meeting in China, I think next week, with leaders from Central Asia, which Russia has not been invited to. That's a really important point. And I'd expect more pressure to be placed on, cent- on Central Asian states then to tow a Chinese-Russia line. As we know, China has come in on, on the side of Russia, a uh, very important meeting between the two leaders in the Kremlin early this year. And that, that triggered a sort of shuttle emergency diplomacy from the West with Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, flying into Central Asia and holding meetings. Mm-hmm. British Foreign Minister James Cleverly, etc., flying in. Uh, the, the Uzbek president was invited to Germany last week, where he signed a, a migration deal. So the EU and the US and Britain, etc., are mm-hmm. trying to counter this 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 influences to this hold really that uh, Russia and China have over the region but it's proving very very difficult to to, to manage one really really quick point which I, which I forgot to make earlier Central Asia is also incredibly important as it and and, and the South Caucasus it, it, they sort of ring the a, a lot of the Caspian Sea which has been used as we know from uh, US intelligence as a conduit for Iran to ferry weapons to Russia uh, through the Caspian Sea, these are missiles and, and drones, etc. So again, the, the the importance of the region is is tantamount. If if you can influence Central Asia, you you know you have a huge uh, advantage. Thank you very much for that, James. That was absolutely fascinating. We're running out of time between us, I think. So let's go to our final thoughts. Roland, I don't know if you can hear us or can still join, but it'd be great to hear just a little bit from you, if if possible. Yeah, you're just going to do some ambient noise. We've got an air raid on, so I've dived into a basement and I can't turn the music off. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to finish a couple of things you said. You asked me about earlier about how things have changed, and I, I forgot to say that, you know, I've just driven through Chasubyar, where I was in February and January, and 
th- I mean, things have changed there. First of all, it is much more badly damaged than it was. You know, when I was there, it was kind of, you know, the battle was over in Bakhmut, and there were still quite a few civilians around. It was loud, it was nervous. There was the occasional shell coming in. Now it is, you know, I mean, kind of every apartment block without smashed up windows and, and things like that. Much, much nastier. And which, which you know, tells you how, how close the, the battle has come. And then um, I remember then, I'm sure if I was talking to the podcast at the time, but anyway, there was a sense at that moment, kind of late January, early February, that Russia was going to, sorry, Ukraine was going to have to give up back move pretty quick. You know, the, the mood on the ground amongst soldiers, amongst civilians, amongst volunteers, everybody in the area was kind of thinking, we've got about a week or two weeks and you we have to pull back or get encircled. That hasn't happened. I was wondering if I was had just got the wrong end of the stick but i was speaking to um, a soldier today who has been stationed there pretty much since then he said to me yeah i remember that moment and yeah i thought the same thing and and he had the same you know he said he agreed with me you know if 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 you told me then that we'd still be here you know several months later which i think i think speaks to i don't know is is there is the is the tide changing or not? I spoke to another commander today and you know asked him if the front is changing. He said, "Of course it is." I said, "Which direction it goes? It depends." So, I don't know if what we're hearing today is going to develop into you know the great big general offensive. I feel like it might actually, but I don't want to jinx it. But it's definitely something significant happening there. Well, thank you very much, Roland, for joining us, and do stay safe. It's really good to hear you, and best of luck with your remaining days in Ukraine. Francis Sternley, can I go to you next? Thanks, David. I'll wrap up with a piece by Alexander Stubb, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Poland, who's written a very interesting piece in the Financial Times called The West Must Learn From Its Mistakes If It Wants to Shape the New World Order. And he articulates neatly, I think, many of the themes we've discussed on this podcast for months now, And I'll quote several segments from it. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth hearing his argument in full. So he starts. There are many events that could plausibly be interpreted as marking the end of the post-Cold War era. 9-11 and the war in Iraq, the financial crisis, the Russian annexation of Crimea. But Russia's full-scale attack on Ukraine was something else. It seemed to force the rest of the world to take sides. There is a general misconception in the West that the world is united in its support for Ukraine. It is not. One might take comfort in the fact that over 140 of the UN's 193 members condemn Russia. But the 35 that abstained represent over half of the world's population. More significantly, only around 40 countries, mostly Western, have placed sanctions on Russia. Only two from Asia have done so, and none from either Africa or Latin America. Russia might be isolated from the West, but not from the rest. He goes on. The new world order will be determined by a triangle of power oscillating between the global West, the global East and the global South. The global West, especially the US, EU and their allies, roughly 50 countries, wants to preserve the existing liberal order. To which I would say for now, although of course that remains an open question in some countries. At the other extreme, the global East, China, Russia, Iran and around 20 countries that support them wants to ditch the liberal order and create new rules and institutions which are less about sharing sovereignty and more about traditional state power and transaction. The global South, led by the likes of India, Saudi Arabia, South America, Nigeria and Brazil, comprises 125 states from across Asia, Africa and Latin America. For many of these countries, the war in Ukraine is less about hegemony and more about food security, energy and inflation. 
The global south does not necessarily want to take sides for the time being. Sitting on the fence is one way of achieving its goals and shaping the emerging order. The global west, and this is where I think he's getting to the real fundamental essence of what he's arguing. The global west is mistaken in framing the new order as a battle between democracies and autocracies. The situation is much more complex than that. For the global east is about power and managing dependencies. For the global south, it's about agency, representation and economic growth and development. The global west wants to maintain the remnants of a liberal world order. It will have to start conducting a more dignified foreign policy. This does not mean sacrificing values on the altar of interests. It means listening and engaging rather than preaching and moralizing. The global east has been better at the game of persuasion. Despite its expansionism, Russia does not have the burden of a colonial past, at least in Latin America and Africa. China has skillfully created dependencies in finance, infrastructure and raw materials since the end of the Cold War, becoming in the process the biggest trading partner for 120 countries. My prediction is that we will see the creation of multiple regional orders and overlapping alliances. No single power will dominate. And while their values and political systems are different, they all need to solve problems, some of them unique, some shared. This decade is likely to frame the world order for the rest of the century. As in 1919 with the botched creation of the League of Nations, 1945 and the establishment of the UN, and 1989, where many of us believe the rest of the world would eventually accept the three pillars of a successful society, liberal democracy, the market economy, and openness to globalisation, we can get it wrong, right or somewhere in between. We must avoid the mistakes of 1919, learn from the balance of power established in 1945 and make the liberal order of 1989 universally appealing. Now, I remember many, many months ago now, John Hemmings writing for us and making a very, very similar argument. And I think this summarizes that in a very accurate way and how things have changed or perhaps not changed in that intervening, intervening period. It also reminds me of the ending of Tony Yuk's post-war book where he says that there are universal lessons for humanity in Europe's tumultuous 20th century and that it still has a vital role to play in offering the world those lessons. But I think where this piece really hits the nail on the head is around this key question of how to make those lessons, those values appealing in a way that is not seen as self-serving for the betterment of all humanity rather than just for the betterment of the West. And perhaps the uncomfortable truth is that you can't. Perhaps the West has relied for too long on the obvious moral rightness of its cause rather than a more grounded, practical approach. And in that sense, I think Stubb is asking the right question, which is why I point listeners to the piece. Thank you very much, Francis. Yes, there's an awful lot to get into there and maybe we could send him a message or something because there's, there's, there's a lot going on there and thank you for summarising summarising it for us. James Kilner, as our guest, would you like to go next? David, yeah, I'm, I'm just, well, I'm, I'm back on the Moscow desk this weekend uh, for the Telegraph and it's promising to, to it look like it's going to be a busy weekend. I'll be looking, obviously, at the front line around Bakhmut, which appears to be very uh, busy at the moment see what Wagner are up to and this continuing evacuation by Russian officials from about 18 villages including around the uh, nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia region as well as everything else that comes my way so um, it's going to be an interesting weekend. 
Thank you very much, James, and best of luck for the weekend. Dom Nichols, would you like to go for the very final thoughts? Well, thanks, David. And I'll just wrap this back into the anticipated counteroffensive, if I may, and take in what we've heard today, what Roland's witnessing and Francis has been commenting on, especially Donald Trump's words. And with the counteroffensive, I've been I've been describing. I wouldn't dream of telling our listenership what to think, but I, I might venture and invite a way of how to think about it. Okay, so this is how I'm thinking about it at the moment. I've explained that that there's a, a range of options in this counteroffensive, from very limited objectives to show that Ukraine has the ability to do combined arms operations, or something much bigger, but that which would risk failure and a potential outbreak of war weariness from the international community and a clamor for negotiations now i've i've been very much more in the former camp thinking they they should go go small show they can do it and then come back later but time 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 is not on their side international support could wane there are elections in many places around the world most importantly the us and francis spoke of that earlier on so all this could suggest that Ukraine will will go for a much bigger attack than that what I've been suggesting recently. Now, put all that against the thought that I said that the military forces will reinforce success. They won't attempt to reinforce failure. They'll reinforce success. There is, at the moment, in Bakhmut, it seems as if there's an opportunity for the Ukrainian armed forces to wipe out the Wagner Group. Now, if that were to happen, that would lead to huge factional conflict in Moscow. And that could lead to the political distraction that would benefit any counteroffensive. So I'm I'm left with the thought, the old Mike Tyson thought that, yep, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And I'm just wondering if Ukraine had a counteroffensive plan and then Russia has decided to punch itself in the face. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Thank you. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.